Hello and welcome to the new season of Learning Rewired, a podcast that aims to cover some of the biggest challenges faced by HR and learning development leaders. This podcast is brought to you by Headspring, the executive development joint venture of the Financial Times and IE Business School. I'm your host, Thiago Kivi, and today I have a very special guest here with me at the FT Studios in London, Rupert Morrison, an entrepreneur, economist, and an author who specializes in organizational design. He's the CEO of OrgView and author of the book Data-Driven Organization Design, which is on its second edition and has been described as a comprehensive Bible on the topic of, of organization design. Rupert, welcome and thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Rupert, organization design, it's one of those subjects which are always relevant to people, right? You know, But I guess at this time when organizations have gone through a pandemic, they've been through major restructures, perhaps like downsizing and so, this is becoming even more important, right? But um, I don't want to dive in right into it right now. I just want you to know a little bit more about you first, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And like, how did you end up, you know, looking after organizations and helping organizations with their design? So I grew up on a, in New Zealand. Uh, so like yourself, you're, you're a Kiwi um, by surname. I'm, I'm a Kiwi by, by birth. And so I grew up on a sheep farm in New Zealand and then uh, studied economics, um, mathematical economics. And for my sins, uh, I was evil in a past life. I went into management consulting, uh, loved it. And in, in that process, helped lots of different clients with different sorts of things. So I did strategy work. I did pricing work. I did uh, supply chain optimization um, cost to serve. So a lot of different types of stuff in a lot of different industries. So mining, uh, automotive, a lot of work in automotive in the beginning, government, healthcare, and the organization design. And I, as part of, um, I came from organization design really from a supply chain perspective and helping supply chain organizations uh, restructure, re-optimize. And because of my background as an economist and supply chain expert, I really went at it from understanding the work. Um, and understanding the process and the flow and accountability. So I was kind of rigorous with it. But the, the, the problem I had was everything was uh, calculated in Excel, sometimes in Access, mm. visualized in PowerPoint. I couldn't even tell you the rainforests that were destroyed in producing PowerPoint slides. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and then they, the numbers wouldn't add up because you, you've got boxes in PowerPoint and you've got your Excel spreadsheet and keeping those two things aligned was, it was a manual task. Mm. And when there's a lot of time pressure, so I just... I felt there had to be a better way. I, I was frustrated with how we were solving it and then the technology I was using. So I then founded Concentra, which is the business that uh, built OrgView, the platform. And, and so that's kind of my background and how I got to mm -hmm. creating a business and, and getting it live and, and, and building s software because I was just deeply frustrated with mm -hmm. the old ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And what is the new way then of doing these things? How, what do you guys do at OrgView? So what, what we do is help clients understand their organizations, design them, properly design them, so not just superficially. Mm. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is not just look at spans and layers and, and, and boxes and who reports to who, but it's understand the work and then the workforce, understand the skills and the behaviors, the competencies required to be effective at doing that work. So what we do is we tie different pieces of data together mm. so that you can then have an organization that will help you execute whatever your strategy is. Mm. And that then morphs into workforce planning. Mm. So you say, what 
so you start having a temporal look of the organization. So what does that need to look like over time? And that's a dynamic process. Mm. So historically, people kind of would do it, like in my PowerPoint, and it would be a one and done. Mm. So oh, we've got our design done, we can move on. The world is, has never been static since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. The world has been dynamic and changing, and that is continued at a pace, and so your organization reflects that. And basically, if your organization isn't moving as fast as the market, you're in decline and you're probably at threat. Mm. And if you look at the number of organizations that disappear mm. um, out of the Fortune 500, mm. um, it's staggering. And the life the lifespan of an organization inside, say, the Dow Jones the, is, is declining all the time at something like 18 years or something. Mm. I, I've forgotten yeah. the precise yeah, yeah. statistic. But it's just interesting to see how do you get your organization so it's evolving at the pace that you need to evolve to meet the market demand mm-hmm. and and moving away from just seeing the organization as um, sticks and boxes. Yeah. Yes, you have sticks and boxes, but you have to be more in-depth than that and more rigorous than that. Are the challenges that they, they present to you, you know, are, are they always the same or or is, is there a pattern on the type of challenges that your clients come to you with? And, and what is it really? That- so, so you kind of alluded to it a little bit. So it, they will often start in different places. Mm. So they, they might start doing post-merger integration, someone acquiring someone else. So that's um, how do you integrate, how do you create from two organizations, one. Mm. They might have a growth strategy. So they might be scaling rapidly into China, for instance. So there's a geographical extension. How do we think about that? Sometimes, uh, you know, they might be going through restructuring and need to take cost out and, and drive efficiency. So the starting point is different. Um, sometimes it's they just don't know what their employees do. Mm-hmm. And employees are frustrated and they have churn and they are the employees doing the right thing. So we focus mm-hmm. on the work and the activities. You had the CEO of one big bank, 200,000 person bank. He's like, I just don't know what the 200,000 people do. I've got all these people. What do they do? I, <laughs> not knowing that. So that's where we started. So it, the starting point um, varies, mm. um, as do the challenges, right, in any organization. Mm. I mean, of course, there are patterns. M&A is M&A and growth is growth and Restructuring is restructuring, but, you know, and, and the tools and the methods and the thinking for is applies to each of those, if that mm-hmm, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Understood, understood. Let's just get the, ba- the basics right then. So can you tell us what is a data-driven organization design and how is it different from a more traditional way of thinking about organization structure? So there's, there's two things. So the data-driven is we're using data. Um, we're using that to help us design the roles. So who's, what is each role, what is each role accountable for? So what are the outcomes that needs to be achieved? What is the work that needs to be done? And what are the competencies, skills, behavior required to do that work? Those are the roles. We then define the positions for each. So for one role, there could be many positions. So I have sales rep and I have multiple sales reps. I define a scope for a position. So I could have a sales rep in northeast of North America and financial services. And all of that is data. Um, the role is data, and like you think of it as a job description. Mm. So I'm giving structure. Then I have people. So the people are the employees, the workforce, but it could be permanent, temp, any, any, any people. It's, think of it as the, the workers or the people doing the work. So we say, who are they? Where are they? Mm. And they have actual. So they have actual skills and behaviors. They do actual work. Is the work they're doing... 
the work that we think they should be doing or not. Mm. And so we then want to understand the delta. What's the gap between what we think it should be mm. and what it is? And so think of this as as a network diagram in, in your head, mm -hmm. <clears throat> a whole piece of connected pieces of data that come together in some sort of structure mm -hmm. uh, to help you forensically understand that organization. Mm -hmm. Then what you're doing is you're designing the future. You're saying, what should it look like? What if we want to grow into China? What if you know, you're an automotive organization and you need to go to electric? What would the workforce of the future look mm -hmm. like? You go and design that. Um, so you, you say, well, we don't have these roles or we have this role, but it, there's new work that it needs to do. Therefore, it's new skills and new behaviors. Mm. And so you're, you're thinking that through. Part of that is structure. Part of that is right-sizing. So right-sizing is the discipline saying, how many workers do we need mm. of each role? Mm -hmm. And then you structure, where should they report? How should they be organized? Mm -hmm. So that's a component. And, and what's different is... Um, the speed and efficiency we can do this because we're not in PowerPoint and Excel, the level of rigor we can go into, so the types of questions we can ask. Because if you're in Excel mm. and PowerPoint, you can't really ask about the work. It's very labor-intensive to do that. Mm. And, and that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to get the thinking. That, so the method came first mm. and then the technology. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a relatively new discipline yeah. for HR, right? It's, it's often been the, the purvey of management consultants um, and, and people, and it, it has a little bit of a mystique of being mm. a dark art. Mm. Yeah. And a part of the reason for writing the book is I'm trying to demystify. It is not a dark art. It is not that complicated. Mm. It's made out to seem complicated, but it's not. You ask very simple questions and you answer them. So that, that's also part of, I think what's maybe what's different is mm. just trying to demystify. Yeah. Does the data come from the questions that you're asking your employees or, or does it, the data come from the work that they're doing and you have like people analytics systems in place. So how, how do you see that? How So, so the, the, some of the data exists already. Mm. So you'll have Workday or Success Factors. Uh, so you'll have data about your employees. So we'll take that data in. A lot of the data doesn't exist. Mm. So, and you might have job titles, but those job titles for, you, you might have, you know, a few hundred people with 10 different job titles, 100 different jobs doing the same job. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, often when we look at the number of job titles to employees is a ratio of two to one, mm -hmm. which is quite creative. People are very creative at inventing job titles. <laughs> uh, so, and, and then you can also have a situation where mm. the job titles are the same, but the work that they do is different mm -hmm. because people aren't structured in how they mm. define job titles. Uh, just as one example. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we give them a way of very quickly, and we call it painting with data. So you mm -hmm. just... Imagine you minority report and you're just dragging and dropping things and you just clean it. Mm. And, and so you then create, here are all the job titles we've got. But then we give meaning to that. So we say, well, what level, what grade are they and what role family? So we start structuring that data. Now that data didn't exist, so then we're creating that data. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, most organizations don't know the work that their employees do. Um, a manager might know the work that their team does, but often not as well. Mm. And even the employee themselves might struggle to even think, well, what work am I really doing? Am I doing the right work? Because yeah. people don't yeah. step back and think about it. So what we do is we build taxonomy. So a taxonomy of the work. Mm. So here are the activities. And then we have survey capabilities. So we survey um, employees and, and they 
complete where they spend their time working. Mm. But we, we do that in a slightly different way. If I would say to you, what percent of time do you spend interviewing people for a podcast? Mm. You probably would struggle to answer that. Mm. Mm. But if I would ask you, how often do you do a podcast? How do you interview in a podcast and how long do they take? Well, you might say, well, I do one a week or one a month or I don't know how often you do them. Yeah. And it takes, you know, an hour plus prep time, maybe it's two, yeah. three hours or whatever it is. And, and so you, we ask questions and then we ask other questions like, do you enjoy it? Do you think you're good at it? Mm. Is this, so we want to ask qualitative information mm. about the work that you do right. as well as quantitative, i.e. the times. Mm. And from that, we, we know your salary. We know where you are. We know everything about you when you joined. We can then aggregate that data up. So we can then say, well, the, this costing the financial times X million and in interviewing people for podcasts. Mm. Is that what you should be doing? Now, the FT might say, actually, we need to be doing, is that all we're spending? That's not enough. We need to be doing way more of this. You might look at other work that you do mm. and you might say, well, that's non-value add. I shouldn't be doing that. Mm. So then you can allocate that work to someone else. Mm. So it, it, it gets quite personal in a way and, and, and because it's about the work that humans do. Yeah. It's about the accountability. And, and I think that's what miss, is missing a lot when people talk about organization design, they think it's some theoretical thing. Again, you know, the, the voodoo, the black magic. It's actually, it's about human beings doing work that's meaningful so they can actually execute what the goal of your organization is. Mm -hmm. what, what's the objective of the Financial Times? It's to report, mm -hmm. share information, insights, yeah. get people to learn. Yeah. Doing this podcast, hopefully, is the kind of thing, maybe not the specific one, but it's the kind of thing that you should be doing, right? But maybe there are things that you shouldn't. So that, that's, hopefully that helps. Yeah. So we're yeah. creating a lot of this data because it doesn't exist. Very, very interesting. And um, on the same note, what are the common mistakes that you see people making when it comes to your organization design? The, the, the most common mistake is designing around people mm. and, and letting politics rule the roost. Mm, interesting. And, and, and what people will often do is they will um, get a pen and paper, they'll draw an org chart, and they'll say, oh, this is what it's going to be. And what they're really doing is saying, I want Adam to have more power. Uh, I like Adam. Uh, and Bridget don't like Rick Bridget so much. I'm going to give more to Adam. And Adam might be lobbying for more and Bridget might be um, struggling. And so people are just making changes on a whim without explaining why. Mm. Another common mistake is oversimplification, oversimplicity. Mm. Um, and, and, and apply, I call it ma the magic number problem. Mm. So... A good example of that is span of control. Span of control is how many direct reports you have. And you know, a lot of people say it should be eight. Eight is a magic number. So everyone should have eight direct reports. And so organizations do a spans analysis, and anyone with less than eight becomes a risk. And you will often see people being made redundant. This often happens in restructuring. Yeah. Because the span of control doesn't meet an arbitrary target without looking at the context of the work, without looking at the, maybe someone has two or three people reporting to them, but they're a player coach and they're actually doing a lot of the work. Mm. So think of a, a legal team, you know, um, the, the head of the, say the, the general, you might have the general counsel or the chief legal person and they might have one or two people working for them. That's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are lots and lots of roles where it is fine. Mm -hmm. And, and so the mistake you're making is you're not understanding the work that, say, that manager is making, and you're just seeing them as, oh, span of control of eight. 
And so applying with a broad brush a rule to the organization, mm. um, often done when people need to restructure. And, and, and then what happens, if you don't change the work, the work doesn't disappear. So it's not sustainable. So if you need to take 10, 20, 30% of the cost out because of the situation you're in, don't just think about taking 20, 30% of the people out. You have to take 20, 30% of the work out. So what work are you going to stop doing? What work are you going to reallocate? What work are you going to say outsource mm. so that you can if you so that you can make that cost saving that you need to achieve in that scenario mm. sustainable? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the mistake that they make, and I would say this is more common than not, is this no, we need 30%, let's fire. Mm. Or let's make them redundant, let's just restructure. Which is why management has such a bad name. Mm. Because so many people in the world have been affected by this, yeah, um, and they and they know that it makes no sense. They know that it's not going to work, and they've seen time and time again. And it's like they're just shifting it around. And okay, we've had our we've had our savings target, but but, but we haven't really. And, and then everyone's working crazy hours. And, everyone's, and you just just you, and you, yeah. and then what you also do is because you're not clear about why you're making the change is not sustainable. Yeah. You destroy the culture yeah. of your organization. Mm, 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 mm. Very interesting. And what is the right way to start then, especially when it comes to starting at becoming a data-driven organization? What, what is the first step? So understand, there's three things. Understand what you have now. So what now? So wh- where are you? Understand what you're trying to achieve. And then think about where you need to get to mm. and how you need to get there. Then you start asking what if questions. So if where you need to get to is we need to be expand digital. Mm. Well, what if we created this? You start asking what if questions. That's a very liberating question. And and I, so I talk about the what if mentality because it doesn't cost me anything to ask the question what if. Mm. Um, you, you need to be clear about your strategy. So what are you trying to achieve? What's really important? Because um, your organization design is there to basically execute that strategy. If you're not clear on your strategy, then your organization design will be muddled. Uh, those are pretty fundamental things. And then you have to manage that change. Uh-huh. Um, so if, for instance, you want to go f- uh, and say move into agile is very popular at the moment. And a lot of our clients are doing agile transformation and creating agile teams. So you have to structure that up and you have to give a, a language around it. Mm. And so you'll, you then need to create a, a talent market pool so you can move people around those different agile positions because mm-hmm. those positions might have a life cycle, uh, life cycle of three, six months. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to then understand what talent do we have to move into that because it's more dynamic. Um, how do we manage the capacity? How do we manage demand and supply? So that then asks the questions, what is our demand? And what is our supply? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's why... Workforce planning morphs into, sorry, org design morphs into workforce planning. They're kind of two related fields that are almost the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you, so you, you're basically going from what now, where are we now, mm. and you're really thinking about the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you're thinking about how you get there. Right. And the org design is, what does the organization of the future need to look like? And the thing about it is the future is forever changing and it's forever moving. So mm-hmm. um, a, a metaphor that... I, I, I read recently is when people think about the stuff they think about movies and a movie has a beginning middle and end mm. and that's it 
Um, an organization's not like that. No. So you should think of an organization as a soap opera. <laughs> it's every episode's different. It's moving and it's going somewhere. And and so you need to manage it where it is today, episode by episode, point to point, yeah. to where you're going. But if you get it right, the you know, the organization should theoretically last forever. Now no one's lasted forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. you know, the Romans did a pretty good job at lasting for close to a thousand years. Um, General Electric last, you know, was in, was the first firm and one of the first 13 in the Dow Jones and they were there up until 2018 and they're still pretty significant. So some people can last, stand the test of time. Hoskvara, where a friend of mine um, is at, they've been here for over 300 years. So, you know, organizations can, can morph and grow. And, and 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 keep on evolving and yeah. actually um Paris from from Husqvarna you know said you you need to understand the mega trends and how are the mega trends changing mm. and then from that those mega trends understand how does your organization need to change and where are the opportunity the other thing mm. is people think too much about mitigating risk and not taking advantage of opportunity so mm. you know I, I think you know Part of your question is, if, if, if we're at this little place today, mm. there are all these risks like COVID, this and that, but, but there are other things that are opportunities. What are they? Change is, is, is also a positive thing. How do you yeah. exploit that? Yeah. And you have to take strategic risk. You have to take risk in order to, to grow and execute. Mm-hmm. And, and so your ability to move fast and take advantage of opportunity is really important and your organization has to move at that speed going back to the point about the speed of the market changing is how fast your organization should change so mm-hmm. if your industry or your domain is changing rapidly mm-hmm. your organization has to be changing rapidly this becomes a, a really important muscle for you to build mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's precisely my next question really you know because in your book you mentioned um that organizations need to be adept to adapt yeah correct uh, yeah what kind of mindset really do you need in order to be able to adapt so fast and uh, and just keep going and making the most of the opportunities? So it's the ability to ask that what if question mm. and then answer it at the speed of thought. Right. To do that, you need to have your foundation, your data foundation in place. When that's in place, you, you can you can run scenarios and mm. and 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 basically in the time it takes for you to ask the question. So then the, the real art is how good are your questions? Mm, interesting, interesting. Right? Yeah. Can you, uh, and, and how, so can you have, and how far into the future can you look? And what kind of predictions about the future can you make? And what kind of bets are you going to make? Mm. And then translate that into, okay, if we want to make this bet, what does our organization need to look like? Mm-hmm. What if, you know, we want to grow into China or we want to, go digital or we need to electrify or you know this we're in oil and gas and we need to we need to go in and carbon neutral yeah how mm-hmm. how are we going to do that so it's the ability to think through and and so to do that you need to give yourself time mm. to mm. think and and so you have to be able to step back and and ask these questions answer them mm. and then be able to execute on it and what happens too much is people just don't step back and think yeah right they just they're just in the motion of doing 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 um i don't know if you've read the 
book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's yes, probably one of my 30, books. Yeah, 30 yeah, years yeah, yeah. old. I mean, it's, I don't oh, know. I love it. <laughs> so in, in that, the, the metaphor of sharpen the saw. Yeah. Person's Keep there. Improving. Yeah. Absolutely. Sharpening, trying to cut a tree down and not getting anywhere. Someone goes, well, take the saw out. And no, no, I don't have time to take the saw. I don't have time to sharpen it. And, you know, if I mix my metaphors again and go back to rugby, one of the hardest things to coach in rugby mm. is to get people to see space, to see what's happening. Mm. Um, actually, football or soccer is a really good sport to play to teach you that because you're always putting your head up to look. Where is the space? Where is the ball? It's dynamically changing. So in, in rugby, you, you can just be down, going, going, going. But the, the great players look up and they see the space. They see the threats. They see the opportunities and they can react. Mm. And that gives them time. So I call that the uh, heads up mindset. So we've got the what if mindset, which is your ability to ask questions and to think about the future and say, what if? The heads up mindset is the ability to give yourself a moment to look, scan mm. and see and see the threats, see the opportunity. And then that buys you time. And then, then execute. Now, the, what you then do is you say, okay, to take advantage of that opportunity or to avoid that threat, what do we need to do? Hmm. And that, that to me, being adept at adapting is being adept at asking those questions, putting your head up and seeing and scanning, thinking through, modeling through scenarios hmm. and options, and then choosing, yeah. selecting. And, and, and then, frankly, if you get it, if you get it wrong, because sometimes you get it wrong, because doing things at pace, you, you, you're going to make the wrong bet. What's the worst thing that can happen? Mm. And it's interesting because um, a question that probably people might be thinking is, okay, but who is in charge of scanning the horizon? You know, especially if we, if we have a very data-driven kind of structure where people are, you know, we're looking at roles, we're looking at uh, what people are actually doing. And then I think you do need to specify that as part of the job title or as part of the job description that you say, you know, you, you need to spend some time looking at the horizon. And just going back to your book, you mentioned actually that organizations, in order to become more data-driven and to really be able to scan the horizon, you need to introduce this new capability called the organization analytics and planning, correct? Yeah. Uh, organizational planning and analysis, OPNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. And also, why do you think this should sit under HR, not under the CEO or under marketing or under sales or under innovation? So I'll start first with finance. So look at the finance function. Finance function, 75% of finance is financial control and operations, paying people on time, credit control, financial accounting, etc. Fundamental. Without that, you don't have a business. 25% is financial planning and analysis. That's planning, it's budgeting, it's, it's engineering the firm, pulling the levers from a financial perspective. That sits in finance and is, is, I think it is the future thinking part of the finance function. Mm. They support the leadership team massively. So if you're the CEO, you're relying on the skill set and the capability of the FPNA function to help you think about the future, make decisions about the future. Let's look at HR. 98 to 100% of HR is talent acquisition, comp and ben, mm. 
moving people around, join and move or leave processes, dispute resolution, dealing with issues. Yeah. Fundamental. If you don't have that, you don't have a business. But who's doing the organization design? Mm. Like, as I've said, who's doing the workforce planning? Who's pulling the levers and the analytics in the same way that FPNA is doing that? So that is a new function that should, in my mind and in the mind of many of my clients, should exist. It's a, it's a muscle that should exist. Mm. Those capabilities and the mindset and the kind of skills to be good at that mm. are quite different to operational HR. Yeah. So it's a different function. It is joined at the hip with FPNA. Right. Because they're doing a lot of the same thinking, the mindset. They're there in service to the business. Mm. Mm. So it's a, it's a discipline. And, and, you know, why is it not in marketing? Because marketing is responsible for understanding how the market's evolving and brand and comms and everything else. Mm. Why is it not in finance? Because finance is about the financial numbers and counting. And, and, mm. a, and, but the, the, the risk for HR is if they don't grab hold of this, it will end up in finance. Strategy and, you know, the strategy function will be joined at the hip with OPNA. Mm. And so, again, it, it comes down to, the, to this give-get that I talked about earlier. OPNA needs to understand the strategy mm. and then help translate what the organization and the workforce plan needs to be the future to execute on that. There you're working with the strategy, you're working with the executive team. Mm -hmm. You know, fundamentally, the CEO owns the strategy and is accountable for that with people supporting. So you, you then have to say, well, given that, this is, these are the scenarios that we could optimize to meet that. So you're doing that in service for the CEO and for the executive team and, and the business leadership. Okay. Then you're operationalizing this. So, for instance, you might need to transition a whole group of people from one set of positions to a new set. Who gets the position of the future? It's dynamic. People are moving around all the time. Mm -hmm. That is fundamentally an HR process. <clears throat> so, you know, I believe it belongs in HR. Uh, I think, you know, too many HR functions are not up to the job today. Mm. Well, I don't just think that. I know that. I observe that. I see that. I, I hear HR people say that to me all the time. So there's an opportunity for HR. To, to develop these skills and to develop this capability, mm -hmm. perhaps bring people in from the outside. Yeah. Right. People who maybe bring in people from FPNA, bring people in from the business who who can ask these questions and 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 have this kind of modelling, thinking of the future kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. Augment your team. Yeah. But then you know, you, what you then use is uh, think about L and D, leadership and uh, learning and development. So if you would ask. Most people, how do you work out what to train people in, what development's needed? Mm. They'll say leadership, all this, that. They'll, they'll go and ask managers and they might come up with some stuff. Whereas I would say you can be data-driven in this approach. For what are the competencies, the skills, behaviors required for each role? What are the actuals? What's the gap? What's really important? That then mm. defines where your L&D budget should go. Mm. So what OPNA does is it puts the structure in place for that information to be collected and analyzed mm. to then feed to the L&D function to then execute and make sure that the, the right people are getting the training to build the skills that they need to be able to execute effectively. And so the, you know, an organization is a system. Everything's, it's like an ecosystem. Everything's connected. Mm. And what skills do you need to, to actually be good at um, OPNA? Well, the first one is asking these questions. Mm. You, you need to be good at, you need to have consulting skills. So you need to be good at 
um, influencing people, uh, understanding what's happening in the business and translating. You need to be good at sitting down with data and explaining things to people that maybe are scared of data. You don't need to be a data scientist, by the way. You don't need to be able to code in Python or any of these sorts mm. of things. Mm. But just have an, have an appreciation of it. I, I, I think data is beautiful, and, and you can make it beautiful by making it visual. Because mm. you're, actually, you're actually just drawing pictures at the end of the day. Like the, the, you're not working in zeros and ones. So you have to be good at drawing in pictures. You have to be good at storytelling. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I'd say the, the most important thing is asking the good questions and helping to answer them and, and stakeholder management. Mm, 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 mm. And that's the thing as well, right? When you start working with data, especially for HR people, that can be a little bit of a minefield, right? You know, some people, you mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of myths around data, you know, a lot of jargon. What are the most common issues that you find, you know, or, or the most common myths around data that you have to help your clients with? Most common myths. Well, one, one issue, um, more data, just one, one trap that people fall into mm. is that just collect lots of data that they have mm. and provide a dashboard and say, look how sexy my dashboard is. Mm without starting with the question that you need to ask in the first place. Mm. So before you even think about collecting any data, analyzing any data, think about what question are you asking? What is the hypothesis that you want to test? Mm. What is the question? Then think about how we want to answer it. So where I like to start is, is, is with a hypothesis tree, which is the set of questions. And then you prioritize the most important questions. Um, and then you start thinking, well, how would I answer that? What data do I need to answer that? So I might have a hypothesis that uh, people are not happy about the work they do. And that's why our level of churn is so high. So then I want to say, well, what work are they unhappy with? And where are they? Why are they unhappy? So that then, that then leads me to designing the type of data collection, which is let's first understand what the work is. Let's understand who's doing what work and let's understand their views on that work. That's more insightful and valuable than saying, why is churn high? Mm. Uh, or no, sorry, is my churn high? Because mm, mm, mm. the, the other problem is it's not what you know that counts, it's what you do with what you know that matters. Mm -hmm. So I could have all the greatest insight in the world, mm. but if I don't do anything about it, it's a waste of time. So what is the action that that data leads to? Mm. So ask the right questions, do the analysis, and then you have, you know, the so what question. So, so what are we going to do? Exactly. Um, and change comes with a lot of pushback. Yeah. Like that's the most common thing whenever you're introducing a new idea. Oh, today we're going to, you know, we're in a path to become a data-driven organization. We're going to just make decisions based on data. People just will roll their eyes, right? You may, and you mentioned that in your book, right? You mentioned there's a lot of, um, well, you know, power play, politics, you know, sarcasm. Yeah. How can you really overcome that, you know, uh, when, you, when you're trying to become uh, more data-driven? So I think if you move it away from people and you make it about the role and the work, if you move, if you, mm. 
Stop making it about the person. Stop making it about their power and them. Dissecting, that helps. I th you know, politics and dealing with politics is, is one of the hardest things about being in business. Mm. And, like operationally, like operating. People have different motives and fears and, and you know, understanding why people are coming, where they're coming from is, is important. But, I, but equally, you, you can unlock a lot of this by just asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. The most powerful thing is your question. Mm. Facts are also really important. Your opinion, it's your opinion. I, okay, that's, try and understand someone's opinion mm. and then say, what are the facts that back that up? Mm. Why do you think what you think? Mm. And then well, what if it was like that? And, and, and so that way you can move away from it and you can de-person and then Try and not make it personal is another thing. I mean, all these skills, by the way, are really, really difficult. Very hard, yeah. Really hard. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm yeah. still very much a, um, an apprentice in, in, in this space. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, your, your ability to ask the right question mm. and your ability to say, here's the fact. This is their opinion. Why? Mm. What is the impact if we went the other way? Another thing to think about is the whiffum and the whammy. What's in it for me and why is it against my interest? So it's really good to ask that question up front. If you're going to go through change, what's in it for, for this person or this group of people and why is it against their interest? Mm. If you can understand that, you can start to think, well, how do we start mitigating it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so within that is, is, is the word empathy. If you can empathize and put yourself in someone else's shoes, you can probably understand the whiff and the whammy better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it might not be their fear or their mm -hmm. resistance might not be unreasonable mm -hmm. if you can unlock mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, change is difficult and it, it is hard and we shouldn't belittle that. And, you know, learning new skills isn't easy. Mm. And there is risk. And we all have families and we all, and, and, and this is something that I think that people underestimate significantly. Mm when you talk about change, is the impact of change on people. And I talk about it a lot in this edition, mm. uh, and I call it horror stories. Right. Because the, the when, I, when I, and I got to the horror stories because I was presenting it, I present a lot at conferences, and when I present at conferences, I talk about the moral imperative. It's not just about the boxes. These are people. And these people have lives and families. And you wouldn't believe the stories that I've heard mm. post-speech, you know, after the conference, people coming up to me, people going and committing suicide, murdering their families, going back into the office and murdering their colleagues. Mm. Like the, the psychological impact of some of these changes, particularly when you're putting someone at risk of redundancy, is absolutely huge. Mm. Mm. And it gets forgotten. Mm. And, and so I think that, that is a, a conversation that needs to be had a lot more. Mm. There is a moral imperative, I, I believe, to do this work and to do it well. Do well exactly. Because there are real humans mm. with real families, real egos tied up in their job. They're, people's work is important. Their job's important to them. Okay. You take that away, you can take away everything from someone. Yeah. And I think that component of it is, is, is lost. And so when we talk about change, I mean, there's de degrees of change. But if you take away someone's accountability... Mm. That could be their, their reason for getting up every morning. Mm. That could be really important to them. Yeah. So just yeah. changing their role profile. Absolutely. Is, is you take away 
you, you change their reporting manager, they might have a, a big trusted relationship in that person that could be their mentor. And, mm. You know, that, that's a big impact. Yeah. So it, it's important to understand this and, and, and not to say, oh, they're just, change, they're just resistant to change. Some people just be resistant for resistance sakes, but understand why. Yeah, Get to it. And then, you know, because at the end of the day, and, and my father used to always say this to me, every human's a human. Yeah, absolutely. And and so see the human there, and I, I think that helps. Yeah. Um, having said that, you know, dealing with politics is... It is hard. There are people that don't have the right motives all the time or and unaligned motives. I think a lot of the time it's, it's just lack of alignment. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it might not be that... It might not even be politics. It might be... A certain group believe we should go left and a certain group we should go right. And they believe passionately about left and right. Mm. And at a point in time, you know what? It doesn't matter. Left could be right. I don't know if left or right is correct because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the, the future is uncertain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So go left, go. And then, you know, if, if I feel, if we're going to, the business choose to go left and I believe, you know, right is the the, the correct thing to do. Then, then either live with it, the cabinet responsibility and support the team or, or or leave, you know, move on. I, you know, I think it's um, that's also fine, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, I think, uh, you know, some, you know, for some people, just a, a small part of their job perhaps is the most important. You know, what you might think it's just one thing that they do, perhaps for, is the sense of purpose. Yeah, I remember this happened to me a few years ago. Like, um, I, I had finally found like a really good. Sp- pot you know my my sweet spot within the company that you should work for and i was really enjoying you know uh you know i'm making an impact here in the business i can see the impact i was seeing the data and all of that and then suddenly that function uh just gets um outsourced yeah you know that really shook me you know yeah. uh i still you know i still had the job you know it, it was just a small part of my job but to me it was really important you know yeah. and and that i left the company a few a few months later you know, um, so exactly. You know, and, and so what's interesting by the story is when we chatted, we were getting a, a glass of water. He's like, "Oh, OD, I don't really know about OD." Yeah, <laughs> but you do, because that story Perhaps, yeah. shows how much it impacted you. Left your pre that, that employer, yeah, because they changed a part of your role, which was really important. And when someone moved that accountability from you to somewhere else, did they sit and think? How does Tiago feel about this? How, what's the impact going to be on Tiago? What's in it for him? Maybe nothing. Well, clearly nothing. Why is it against his interest? Huge, because that's that's his passion. That's what he loves. Yeah, yeah. And if they would have just asked you, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, they would Nobody have just asked. asked. Me. Yeah. And, and and by the way, to ask, you you build a taxonomy of the work, mm. and that one thing I don't know what it was, but let's call it X. Mm. You would have said, I only spend. You know, I'm only doing X this bit, but I love X. Hmm. This is I want to do more of X. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We would see that in the data. That's a piece of data. Interesting. Yeah. So do you really think that organizational design can really help to improve all these things that we're talking about now? Mental health, well-being, you know, a sense of motivation. Of course, it's not the only aspect, but do you feel that there's a con- it contributes to a better... I, I think it more than contributes. I think it... You're designing roles. Mm. And when you're designing roles, let's go back to Daniel Pink's work on what motivates people in the workforce. Daniel Pink in his book Drive said there are three things that Mm. motivate people in the workforce. Purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Purpose is 
what is the purpose of not just the organization, but of the role of the work I'm doing? Does it, mm. does that motivate me? Autonomy is, what is my scope of responsibility? Am I accountable for making certain decisions? And can I be allowed to make them? Mm. Right? Having autonomy, the sense of self-control is really, that drives motivation. And the third is mastery. Having the skills and the ability to be really good at doing what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, connected to this is in, in the world of um, positive psychology is a concept of flow. Yep. And there's a there's the flow channel. And we all know what flow feels like if you're playing something, you know, let's say you love playing the piano. You lose sense of time. There's constant feedback and there's a constant sense of improvement. Yeah. Uh, there's no sense of risk. You don't feel threatened. If you feel threatened, you're not in a state of flow. Um, so flow is a concept from positive psychology about what makes us great and what makes us happy. Mm -hmm. In organization design, it's the same thing. You're designing roles around that, making sure that the work has enough challenge but not too much. Mm -hmm. Because if it's too much challenge for my skill set, I'm going to be scared and in a state of paralysis. Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to be anxious. Mm -hmm. But if, if I'm overqualified, it's, it's too easy, I'm bored. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that needs to be, so the, the mastery is, is I, I need to still be learning. I need to be pushing forward. So that's important for, for flow. Mm -hmm. When you're designing roles in your organization, that's part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. right? and, and, you know, your previous employer, if they would have thought about your role, and they would say, well, just, you know, what gives a sense of purpose? What's Tiago really good at? Yeah. And this, and they would have, understood that, asked you or yep. collected the data and, you know, they would have seen it and, and you design around that. Mm. And, and, and what's interesting is you have so many different types of people. So if we talk about mental health, there's a lot of neurological diversity. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certain people um, prefer more introvert tasks. I mean, I, I, I've, I've got people um, who I've worked with who are beyond brilliant mm. and, you know, maths, majors, but also very good with people mm -hmm. and very good with clients, very articulate. Put them in front of a client, they're in panic mode. <laughs> you know, you, I didn't know that. Yeah. But when you ask, they, they, they want to sit there and write code. They want to problem solve. Mm. There are other people that love nothing more than being outside, being with clients, being in... So different people need different things and it's all fine. It's just, so you can design the roles to give people what they want. It's just, again, it's a little bit of thought and that can go a long way to driving mental health. And, and that's at the, at the, the simple level. At, 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 the, at the extreme level is the horror stories. It's, mm. it's just doing a spans and layers analysis and making a whole bunch of people redundant without explaining why, how, what the impact is and understanding it. If, you can, if people can understand why and you've gone through a proper process they're going to be much better at dealing with the implication. Yeah. I might have lost my job, or I might have lost part of my accountability. Yeah. And so, all I you know ask for in that scenario is just think, mm. spend the do the work. Don't just shortcut. This is the kind of thing yeah. I don't think you should shortcut. And too often, yeah, people shortcut, and and the consequences, uh, you know, can be. Yeah really dire yeah as you said you you know you have people at the end right you know it's all about people yeah and how do you as a as a ceo really apply all all of this you know that we're talking about in, in your own company 
as best as I can. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy, is it? Like, it's, you know. If it was easy, yeah. you know, everyone would be doing it. But no, it's, it's just applying these principles. Uh, I think culture is so important. Mm. Um, I'm not an expert at it, but I... I value it massively and the more you can, you know, that conversation is, should always be at the forefront of your mind and focusing on what you're good at mm. and, and having others focus on, on other things. Mm. And, 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 and the other thing is your role is constantly evolving and as, as an organization's growing and changing your role. So dealing with that own personal change is also, that's hard, right? That takes time and effort. So you, you need coaches, you need mentors. So one thing I, 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 you know, I, I mentioned Ian Cantor as a mentor. I had Richard Thompson, who was a mentor yeah. a long time before that. I, I talk about some of these people in my book. You know, you try and seek people who have seen the movie before yeah, or the soap opera before yeah, uh, <laughs> and get advice. And, and then at the end of the day, you will make mistakes. <laughs> and mm. and I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather make a, um, a mistake early mm. and then correct. So that, and that's kind of a mindset. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, but that's the joy of of living and working, right? Is, is yeah. going through this journey. If it's uh, if it was all zeros and ones, yeah. if it was all an algorithm that would just give us the answer, then um, yeah. it wouldn't be as much fun either. And uh, for the organisations going through, still going through changes, what would be your final piece of advice then? My final piece of advice going through change: ask the right questions, <laughs> have the what if mindset. Ask what if we did this, what if that? That's a low cost question. And scan, have your head up mentality, look around and think about, you know, don't just get stuck in the day to day and, 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 and you know, we, we can all do that. But I, I think, I think, I mean, there's a million and one things, but th those would be my um, bits of passing advice for, mm -hmm. for what that's, for what's that, for what's that worth. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Rupert. Thank um, you so much, Tiago. It's been very, very interesting. Uh, for people who are listening, what would be the best way for, for them to get in touch with you, to know more about your work? So I'm on LinkedIn. Yep. So Rupert Morrison on LinkedIn, you'll find me there. Or you can find us at OrgView. So I'll, it's O-R-G, Org is easy, but V-U-E, so Visual User Experience, V-U-E dot com. Right, right. That's great. Thank you very much, Rupert. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, we have a lot more coming over the next few weeks. So please subscribe, share with your colleagues, and if you have time, leave us a review. And if you'd like to know more about Headspring and our executive learning solutions, please visit our website, which is www.headspringexecutive.com. www.headspringexecutive.com. We have a lot of resources, web articles, webinars. We have a lot of content for learning development professionals. So keep an eye. And uh, for now, I've been Thiago Kivi, and I uh, hope to see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.